0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Paul Meese debate, the inaugural Paul Mees debate. My name is John Fain, I work for the ABC, for 774 ABC Melbourne and it's my genuine honour and privilege to be asked to MC and moderate this debate. Which is of course an opportunity to acknowledge the work of a remarkable man who we shall talk about some more in just a moment. A few bits and pieces. First of all, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Bailey family. <laughs> I think Paul would have liked that. And the evening proceeds accordingly from here. I hope it doesn't descend into chaos, but he would have liked that too. I think I first met Paul when he was trying to get his agenda onto the front foot in Melbourne's public transport and planning debate. And as soon as you met Paul, you realised that you were in the presence of someone who genuinely could be described as a force of nature. He was a unique individual. Those of you who knew him will have many fond memories and probably better ones than mine. Those of you who didn't know him, let me assure you, you missed out big time. And we still draw, many of us, inspiration from Paul because he was that extraordinary combination of activist and academic. He genuinely, not only passionately cared about it, like the best activists, but he knew his stuff and could pretty much out-argue anybody about the topics that he knew. And they were eclectic and much broader than you might have realised. You'll hear several tributes from him today. One quick anecdote from me, dare I confess, and this is a story against my own interests, which is also in the spirit of Paul Mees. there is occasionally in the radio world that terrible moment at 8.25 in the morning when we still don't have a clue who we're going to interview at 8.30. It happens about once every two or three years when everything just goes wrong, it all goes to shit and everyone you want is not available or every idea you have is pinched by another program or whatever it is, it just goes wrong. And Paul Mees was invented for those days. <laughs> because you could ring him at 8.25 and you could say, Paul, we're up shit creek without a paddle can you talk for 10 minutes in 10 minutes? And he would absolutely not just be available, not just be willing, but he would do it and do it with substance and with aplomb. And he was a radio presenter's dream guest. He knew his stuff, and in a debate he was deadly, which is why the idea of a debate, to remember Paul, is particularly appropriate. Might I also say it's wonderful to have three or 400 people turn up at this time of a wintry, believe it or not, evening in Melbourne, and it's a great tribute to the democratic instincts of Melbourne that you're all prepared to so do. Very quickly, some housekeeping. We love these gadgets. We cannot live without them, but please, just check once more that yours is on silent, and if you can't quite bring yourself to turn it off, at least make sure it's not going to interrupt our evening. There are questions later. We'll hear from the protagonists on both sides. I hope they'll behave themselves. The rules are very simple. They've got 10 minutes each. I'll give you each a two-minute warning when we get to eight minutes, and then I'll give you a 30-second reminder, and then I'll shut you up at 10. At the end of the debate, you will be asked to decide by the noise you make which side has won, and I'll give you ample opportunity to make that decision. There is, however, a window for questions before then. And when it comes to questions, the rules are very simple. We're inviting you to ask a question. Not sing a song, recite a poem, or make a speech, but to ask a question. If you can do us the courtesy of introducing yourself as you ask the question, and questions are asked by the microphone which will be at the top of the stairs. And there'll be one of the RMIT volunteer student staffers there to guide you through, and we'll take questions in the order that you're queuing up. It's as simple as that. Other than that, The formalities are few, the format though is to invite both content and also humour. No surprises there, that's the point of a comedy debate and we are well equipped with our guests to do so. For the affirmative team ladies and gentlemen, Associate Professor Wendy Steele, Principal Research Fellow at RMIT University, William McDougall, Consultant Transport Planner, Engineer and Economist and Mr Rod Quantock. Melbourne comedian, self-professed failed architect and the acting convener of the protectors of public lands. Could you make them very welcome? (laughs) For the negative side, Senator now Janet Rice from the Australian Greens, the former Mayor of Maribyrnong and co-founder and former chair of the Metropolitan Transport Forum, then Councillor Jackie Frustacki, the Mayor of the City of Yarra and Professor Carolyn Witzman... Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, could you equally show your enthusiasm for them? We are here today at the indulgence of RMIT University. Professor Jill Palmer is the Vice Chancellor and President, and she will formally and officially welcome you all here this evening. Professor Jill, thank you very much. Could you make her welcome as she comes up the stairs to the lectern? Professor Jill Palmer.
1: Thanks very much, Ron. And my welcome, too, to this the inaugural Paul Mees Public Debate. I'm the formalities, so the fun starts later. The, The issue here, though, is it's a very fitting debate for somebody who was such a part of public debate in this city, not only in this city, but also had an impact in Australia and globally. I'm going to do the formalities in that I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Coulomb Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which RMIT stands, and we respectfully pay our respects to their elders past and present. This event is to honor Associate Professor Paul Mees A- OAM, born in 1961, sadly passed away last year at the age of 52. And I'd also like to welcome and acknowledge his widow, Erica Savini, and the family members who are here tonight. I've been asked to say a little bit about Paul. Paul was one of Australia's, I suspect most of you know, but Paul was one of Australia's leading experts on urban public transport. In 2014, he was awarded a medal in the Order of Australia for service to public transport and urban planning as an academic and advocate for sustainable cities. His work has been internationally influential, providing, for example, the basis of the European Union's 205 High trans project for improving public transport in medium-sized cities and towns. From 2008, he taught at RMIT and was a valued member of staff, always willing to share his time and expertise with students, colleagues, and the broader community. We're very proud of him, as you can imagine. And a quote from an obituary titled Death of an Urbanist, Paul Meese, 1961-13 by Brendan Gleeson. Paul Andrew Meese was a scholar of great accomplishment and distinction. His death on the 19th of June, 2013 at the early age of 52 deprived Australia of one of its most fearless and perceptive academic voices. He spoke truth to power unswervingly bravely and through recourse to the best available evidence and analysis of urban conditions. There's also an obituary by Professor Jago Dodson, who's here this night, uh, and I'll make the closing address, Who was one of Paul's colleagues and friends, and he can say it himself, but I will quote, his, his masterwork, Transport for Suburbia, confirmed his significance as Australia's most provocatively constructive urban thinker. The signal argument of the text was that deftly crafted transport policy aided by institutional frameworks dedicated to the public good can deliver high-quality public transport even in dispersed suburbia. He was an exemplary teacher readily applying the prosecutional style he had honed in debating troops and legal practice to the systematic appraisal of planning, thought and knowledge. As he says, he was... Paul was an activist, advocate, scholar, stator of facts, disrober of emperors, beer theorist, uh, colleague, husband to Erica, and a dear friend. So tonight we recall Paul's many qualities. Thanks to the significant research contributions of academics, including without doubt the high reputation held by Paul Meaves, RMIT was very proud to have achieved an an ER ERA, that's an Excellent in Research for Australia, rating of four in his field of urban and regional planning. That means it's above world standard. So Associate Professor Paul Meese will not be forgotten. This annual lecture, we hope, will keep alive both civic debate and and his questioning spirit of tireless public questioning. So in remembrance of Paul Meese, I and to celebrate his work and life, the university would like to look forward to public debates uh, of this nature as a regular feature, and we look forward to this one tonight. It features some very interesting, well-known, much-loved debaters, politician, comedian, counsellor, professors of urban planning, and a consultant. So we can expect a lively public debate, just as it should be, very well compared. So thank you for coming tonight, and please enjoy this inaugural Paul Mees public debate. Thank you.
0: Thank you Professor Jill. And I didn't get to use my bell on her, that's a shame. I was looking forward to the opportunity. The proposition is, ladies and gentlemen, that public transport is too important to be left to politicians. That's the proposition for the affirmative, on the other hand, public transport is not too important to be left to politicians for the negative. Our first speaker for the affirmative, ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Steele.
2: Right, Wendy. <laughs> hey. Thank you. Let's not be about the bush. We live in an era of corporate greed-led urban growth, environmental vandalism come climate change and communal crisis. Politically, there has been a hardening of the national heart. Now, we know public transport is vitally important key arteries that are too important to be left to the electoral cycles and political spin of politicians. What we need is alternatives to the car and we need them now because problems like climate change and insecure oil supplies are urgent. The solution, according to Paul Meese, comes when citizens begin asking for more and start entering into the public debate. In Paul's words, the truth really does matter, no matter how upsetting it is to the powers that be. Speaking truth to power, and that was Paul. The first time I met Paul, he was gesticulating wildly, swearing profusely, and spitting randomly into my dinner. He was, of course, discussing the state of affairs of uh, Victorian public transport. As far as urban scholars go, in the area of city sustainability and public transport, Paul had no peer. Intelligent, articulate, funny, angry, passionate, no excuses, no pretenses, just keeping the damn pollies real. No offence. Kiss no bum, tug no forelock. This is how Australian writer Tim Winton described the music of midnight oil, which he first heard in a friend's terrace house here in Melbourne in Fitzroy in the 1970s. This was music about Australia in all its ugliness, all its glory, sung in our unmistakable accent without self-consciousness or apology. The music was infused with the atmosphere of suburban Australia, where underneath the seemingly safe surface lies a jerky agitation and an itch that deepens in intensity as the rich get richer and the poor start to get the picture, the picture of their place in the growing socioeconomic divide in this sacred land. For Winton writing in the 1990s, the music of the oils connected to all that restless Australian suburban energy, hope, dismay, paranoia, where it seemed that Australia had stopped thinking and gone shopping in the face of the need for a vision about our communal future. Where, he asked, was the necessary carriage of ideas, the raising of uncomfortable pressing questions. In his words, at a time when so few of our politicians represent us with any imagination or honesty, no offence, So, few of them have done anything but welcome the current era of economic fundamentalism that our children are about to inherit. We need civic light in the political darkness. And given what was to come in Australian politics in the 2000s, a cautionary Australian tale, it is indeed. But the issues still confront us, the big issues. They taunt us. They haunt us to our collective core. As Paul Meese highlights in his seminal books, A Very Public Solution and later, Transport for Suburbia Beyond the Automobile Age, Moving towards mass automobility, we face the prospects of an environmental and urban health disaster unless alternatives are found. But while public transport has worked well in the dense cores of some of the big cities, he says, the problem is that most residents in Australia live in dispersed suburbs. These suburban places usually have inadequate, little or no public transport, and most politicians seem to have given up the task of changing this. It all seems, so they say, just too hard. How dense are we? This is a classic Paul tongue-in-cheek provocation to the suburban critique where the need for effective public transport is greater than ever in the 21st century. So within the climate, current climate of change, leaving public transport to politicians does seem a little on the risky side, if not downright irresponsible. And There is, after all, no great precedent for this in Australia. I mean, nobody is suggesting that politicians don't play their part But they are, for the most part, a pretty mixed bag. And while there are some very good ones, obviously present company uh, is included in that, outside this theatre, there are some less than inspiring sorts peppering everyday Australian political life. This is the uninformed, the ambitious, the cowardly, the verbose, the misguided, the self-serving, the greedy, the pompous, and the list goes on. And then, of course, there are the downright nutters, the mad badgers, who, quite frankly, shouldn't be left to make a cup of tea, let alone make decisions about the future of our public transport. So I'll give you an example. I come from Queensland. I know, I look quite normal, don't I? (laughs) I know. I bet that's a surprise. But that ragged edge of empire, the sunshine state of exception where things are done differently, we have our fair share of political characters. We have Joe. We have... uh, Pauline, we have Catter, we have Clive Palmer, and all of these proudly come from Queensland. And of course, Candu Campbell Newman, the current Premier, when Mayor of Brisbane, rammed through what many of you will know as the City of Tunnels as a quick fix to congestion congestion not foreshadowed in any public transport planning and policy agenda at the time. So at that time, the five road, tunnel and bridge projects was boasted about as the largest public-private partnership consortium in Australia. This partnership was also, no surprise, the focus of an independent review entitled Brokering Balance, a public interest map for Queensland government bodies. The main concerns expressed in the report highlighted the high levels of public interest risk, the sensitivity of activities such as procuring and awarding uh, large contracts, the sensitivity around land resumptions from citizens and compliance management. Does this sound familiar? Melbourneites. And what we learned from this in Queensland, or, of course, in in Queensland didn't learn, was that when it comes to politics and transport, the following principles seem to apply. Firstly, that economics and employment is prioritised over sustainability. Second, that mobility is prioritised over accessibility. Car-based projects are easier to privately finance. Velocity is prioritised over quality. Project, not process-led planning, is the name of the day and there is circumscribed community involvement as shareholders and stakeholders, not as citizens. But more worryingly perhaps is that sections of planning seem to be moving into uh, shady wings beyond scrutiny, protected under commercial and confidence provisions of PPPs, and dubiously and possibly self-serving processes and techniques, particularly around traffic modelling and forecasts, that go to the heart and core of private financing. But let's lift now to the national scale and ponder together the recent Joe Hockey gaff and comments. Much has been made of Joe being driven around in chauffeured cars commenting on the transport requirements of poor Australians, but I won't mention that at all at this point. But what I will say is that what he said in relation to the government's planned fuel tax is this, that the poorest people either don't have cars or actually don't drive very far in many cases, but they are opposing what is meant to be, according to Treasury, a progressive tax. Hmm. So the hockey episode was particularly telling on two fronts. The first one is that it illustrates the growing divide and disconnect between what politicians in Canberra think and what the everyday community reality is. In 2008, research by colleagues Jago Dodson, who's here tonight, and Neil Sight through the Vampire Index highlighted that the landscape of oil and mortgage vulnerability in Australian cities suggests that the vulnerability gap is widening and that the most vulnerable people and areas of cities remain highly vulnerable with public transport availability and use in those areas severely limited. The result, they argued, was that it is a highly regressive pattern in which the impacts of higher fuel costs and increased interest rates fall on those with the least capacity to absorb those impacts, and that the deficits in urban infrastructure and services mean that the most vulnerable households have the least ability to adapt. And secondly, what the hockey debacle offered us was an opportunity uh, that was lost to highlight the role and importance of public transport as the future. And instead, the politicians and media commentary focused on reinforcing automobility, cars, private driving, as the defining need and aspiration for Australians. And it is here that the voice of Paul Meese is sorely missed, taking that dominant discourse, turning it on its head, and showing both what is broken and what is possible. I mean, too sick to make it into the actual uh, community meeting, Paul filmed comments and voiced his concerns recent about the east-west tunnel project so as to give Victorian public transport another much-needed voice, highlighting, as he did, the failure of the feasibility plan for the tunnel to stand up, the deficit in public transport capacity in the state that would result from the budget allocated to the tunnel, and also the more progressive alternatives that are available, particularly around rail. This is talking truth to power. This is what Paul did. And at no time, as far as I can recall, did he suggest that we should leave the issues to pollies alone, far from it. As Paul said, for people concerned about the environment and social costs of automobile-dominated cities, the public transport problem is easier to solve than most people think. We don't need to demolish our suburbs and rebuild them at many times their current densities. What he said was we need a fundamental transformation uh, Uh, What we don't need, actually, is a fundamental transformation, however desirable that might be, because at heart, good public transport, Paul argued, requires good planning. And good planning policy, along with honest and competent public administration. But these things do not come about by accident. They require an active, informed community. And they insist that policies be based on evidence rather than spin. Kiss no bum, tug no forelock, speaking truth to power. As Winton writes and Paul Meese's work and life as a public transport scholar and activist personifies, after passion comes wisdom. This is the oldest story in the world. Urban story, earth story, Melbourne story, our story. To this, we can all stake a claim. It's beyond politicians and party politics. It's the conviction that places and people matter, that democracy matters, that the environment matters, that civic responsibility and engagement matters. Is public transport too important to be left to politicians? You're <laughs> well, damn right it is.
3: First Sorry.
1: Our first thing is
2: that public
0: transport is not too important to be left to the politicians. Senator...
3: Thank you. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land and their elders past and present. I feel humbled to be here tonight debating in memory of Paul. I'm glad to be here not debating with Paul. 90% of the time I talked with Paul, it became a debate and he always won. How many of you knew Paul? How many of you won an argument against him? <laughs> he specialized in forensic examination of views put forward, scathing slapdowns of woolly and lazy thinking, and piercing observations of why what was being proposed wasn 't in fact correct in preparing to the, for tonight, I tried to imagine what Paul would have done with tonight 's topic because He would have been on our side. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm sorry. Paul would have ripped you to shreds, Wendy, far more than I'm able to do. I'm a politician. I need to keep myself nice. Paul didn't worry about bringing people on side and keeping people happy and bringing them along. He was provocative and bold, and indeed, he did speak truth to power, and to anyone and everyone who was listening, and we loved him for it. Your arguments, Wendy, sound so obvious, so self-evident. Of course we should have evidence-based planning led by citizens with planning and recommendations done by, what did you say, honest and competent bureaucrats, not us conniving politicians who are manipulated by the market and, and corrupted by calculating corporations. You present lots of problems, but not the case that leaving politicians out is going to solve these problems. Because when you put the blowtorch to their argument, as Paul would have done, the most likely outcome of taking the power away from politicians is not that the community gets the power, but that instead the bureaucrats take over the reins. Making decisions without accountability or transparency, ably aided and abetted by the very corporations and institutions you've been railing against. Just think of the contortions that Infrastructure Australia is currently going through, and I'm sure they will, to justify spending money on the East-West Link. This is what happens to these bureaucrats and these objective processes. Paul made this point himself in a paper which was a withering critique of Melbourne 2030, where he stated, A common account of the woes of planners posits professional planners as guardians of the public good whose noble intentions are overturned by political interference development lobbies, or ignorant NIMBY members of the public. But this insistence that planning is political becomes an excuse for senior bureaucrats to refuse to share power. And meanwhile, real planning is done by road engineers untroubled by postmodern angst about the nature of their task. Or if you'd like another point of view, consider what we've learnt from that accurate ABC TV documentary series utopia. Do we really want the whole show to be run and controlled by bureaucrats, like marketing obsessed Rhonda? I don't want to build it, I just want to launch it. And business papers, who reads those? Or Jim, would the whole thing be a hub? It's a good word. Can we call it a hub? It's a good word, hub. And we need a new push, a new thrust. Let's move on to consider the alternative. Let's look at the Colombian capital of Bogota. Their transport system has been transformed to serve the needs of all residents, not just the rich in cars. As the mayor who oversaw this transformation, Enrique Penalosa, declared, urban transport is a political and not a technical issue. The technical aspects are very simple. The difficult decisions relate to who is going to benefit from the models adopted. Jackie is going to tell you more about the inspirational Penelosa, a politician who knew the needs of his community in a way no bureaucrat can or would. The best planning happens when politicians are central to the decision-making process. In fact, transport planning in Australia would actually benefit from stronger political oversight rather than being managed by bureaucrats with a tendency to get technical aspects wrong. Take the regional rail link project as an example. It was a project that Paul wasn't overly fond of. It's not because politicians were in control that we're ending up with Werribee being cut off from, from Geelong, Geelong trains taking longer to get to Melbourne, regional trains bypassing North Melbourne Station and the growing suburbs of Derrimut and Tarnit being served by infrequent diesel train service. If the planning had been in the hands of good politicians who were committed to, taking the, to working with the community and taking the views of their community on board, all of these problems could have been solved. So which politicians should continue to have ultimate decision-making power when it comes to public transport planning and decisions? I'm a politician. Jackie is a politician. We are not all the one breed, and personally I am offended... And generally not keen on being lumped in with Dennis contract signing on the fly as you screech down the election home straight, napthine. Or, "Tony, let's stick to our knitting and keep building roads." Abbott." Or in fact, "Dan, flip-flop, I don't even know whether I'm Dan or Daniel. Andrews. All politicians are not equal. And we agree absolutely that public transport planning should not be left to politicians who obfuscate, mislead and blatantly lie as they go about their business. Who get elected on a promise of better public transport who deliver on massive polluting tollways. Nothing should be left to those politicians. They should be removed from office as soon as possible. Turfed out totally. Good politicians are those who work with evidence, who are committed to working with their communities, who aim to build community understanding and involvement in decision making. Critically, they have been elected with a mandate to stay true to their values and to implement what in fact may be courageous decisions, to quote Sir Humphrey. The cities with transport that everyone loves, with great, integrated, connected, fast, frequent, reliable, affordable, safe public transport that gets people to where they need to go, didn't develop because politicians got out of the way. In fact, it was the opposite. They developed that way because politicians with vision and drive got elected and had the political will to stand up to the road lobby. I had the privilege years ago as Maribyrnong Mayor and Chair of the Metropolitan Transport Forum, to go on a study tour of cities that had great public transport walking and cycling. I was expecting to see some intrinsic differences between these cities and our Australian cities. You know, something about their physical form, their geography, their history, but the overwhelming difference was political will. People had made their democratic processes work for them, And in cities like Amsterdam, where cars were on the verge of taking over in the 70s, they changed course and delivered strong regulations, planning and investment in public transport and cycling. In Copenhagen and other cities, they did the same. In Stockholm, in Sweden, I was there just at the time when incoming Greens MPs supported the Social Democrat city government on the condition of a trial of a congestion charge in the inner city. At that stage, the Social Democrats and two-thirds of the community were opposed to, this, to a congestion charge, but because of the political will of the Greens, they got their trail, which included big improvements in public transport as well. After six months of operation, the opinion polls had swung completely around, with two-thirds of the community now supporting the congestion charge, and the charge was made permanent. The new Swedish government elected a week ago is a Social Democrat Green Alliance. So I'm expecting great things from them. In addition to having a clear vision, good politicians do two important things. One is to put in place accountable, transparent planning processes so that transport that serves the community's interests and future well-being is prioritised. And the other is to build consensus across party lines. So this rollout can continue beyond the political cycle, regardless of which party is in government. When I was in Copenhagen and I spoke to the then um, Social Democrat government and said, but you know, what if the Conservatives get back in? Aren't they going to roll back all of this? And they said, no, there's no way that they would ever, ever um, be willing to do that because of their community support and the consensus that had been built around their initiatives. Jackie and Carolyn are going to share with you some more examples of where good politicians, powerful politicians who are committed to sharing their power with the community, have made massive differences to their cities. I'm going to finish though with one example here in Melbourne, and that's the city of Yarra. Over the la- last decade, <laughs> the council has been committed to walking, cycling, and public transport led by councillors, not the bureaucrats, led by the councillors including Jackie who like me ditched a mayoral car for the mayoral bike. We have current Greens councillors, Amanda Stone, Sam Gaylard and Misha Coleman and former councillors including Alison Clark and Greg Barber. As a result of this political leadership of politicians being there, Yarra has led the country in prioritising walking, cycling and public transport and the results are there for all to see. Public transport planning is too important to be left to unaccountable bureaucrats and duplicitous politicians, but we can do better than that. We've got a state election coming up in 45 days here in Victoria and it gives us a chance of electing some very different politicians who are committed to working with the community to finally deliver the public transport we deserve. So as well as us winning this debate tonight, I am looking to forward to those politicians being elected to bring it on and we deliver a, a terrific public transport system for Melbourne. Thank you.
0: I can see that wasn't part of my filling in the form exercise at work, was it? Our next speaker for the affirmative team, ladies and gentlemen, could you please welcome William McDougall? William.
3: Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> well,
4: public transport planning, too important to be left to politicians. Uh, I'm a public transport planner. Of course I would say that. Um, <clears throat> we, public transport planners have been saying for years that big cities need more public transport to stay competitive. We used to plan cities decades ahead and we had authorities with the teeth to look after the progress. Here are some of my observations from working on transport planning issues as a consultant. Firstly, I should say, when I mention politicians henceforth, I refer to those that currently hold sway uh, in Victoria and Australia. The so-called major parties. My good friends Janet and Jackie will no doubt tell you that you just have to choose that that you, that you have just have to choose the right, and by right I mean correct politicians, and they'd be right. I mean correct. But sadly, at the moment, <clears throat> there are just aren't enough of you, Greens nor women. It has to be said. And uh, the fact that Janet had to go as far as South America just now to find a good politician in her tour. I don't know how many Jackie's going to come up with. (laughs) Says a lot. So, transport planning. Not only is it too important, it's also far too complicated and specialised for politicians to do it. In virtually every major study I've been involved with, the potential benefits, which take a bit of working out, have been scuppered by political interference or at best ignorance. I think the reason for this is, well, there are lots of reasons, but in the case of the politicians, they tend to work, obviously, to time frames that are far too short and make decisions based on their own expectations of current short-term political issues. Most politicians don't use public transport themselves on a daily basis, nor do they even he says, finding the wrong piece of paper, trouble themselves to understand the details of public transport system properly. I've got some examples of that that I can talk to you about later. (laughs) Sadly, they're much too far removed from real life to understand anything very much. My first experience of working with Paul Meese is a case in point. This was the early days of the, sorry, I'll just get this out of the way the early days of the Northern Central City Corridor study. This was a study that was set up by the Brax government as an election promise to counter Jeff Kennett's proposed east-west tunnel. We were setting up the study protocols when we, when we started. I was managing the study. We decided that we needed a community reference group with an independent chair. And we've given the responsible minister of the day a list of the organizations we wanted to invite. We naturally included the PTUA, of which Paul was then the leading spokesperson, and he was a big thorn in the side of the government. The minister promptly crossed them off the list. In stepped Julianne Bell of the Royal Park Protection Society. She co-opted Paul onto their committee, (laughs) <laughs> and then nominated him as their rep on our community <laughs> reference group. Paul made some great contributions to the work as we progressed <clears throat> and I fairly enjoyed working with him. Um, I think another political example came up while we were doing that study. We were reliably informed. One of the problematic rat runs through the northern suburbs was uh, the scotchmouth Pigden michael Street route which I'm sure many of you are familiar with and if you don't then... Uh, Please don't go and investigate in your car. Um, <clears throat> and there were proposals to block off median openings on the main roads crossing that to break it up as a through route, because it's a popular through route and rat run. And uh, those proposals were killed by the planning minister of the day. I'm, I was reliably informed some years ago, uh, because it was the journey he used to take to work in his car. <coughs> So anyway, we continued with the NCCC study, and we developed a draft strategy for the Inner North based on improving public transport in line with the then new 2020 tagline that went with Melbourne 2030. Um, (coughs) That we should aim to get public transport carrying 20% of all motorized trips in Melbourne by 2020. At the time that idea was coined, it was about 9% across the city as a whole. in a way, speaking of 2020, um, the politicians, when that was first coined, they sprooked it vociferously. Then they started calling it aspirational. <clears throat> and then after the public transport initiatives required had been nutted out and costed, they quietly dropped it altogether. That was about the time that Melbourne was first ranked as the world's most livable city. So then suddenly we had the transport and livability statement. Um, Incidentally, for those of you that aren't aware, that livability index, the one which Melbourne gets to the top of regularly, um, is produced by the Economist Intelligence Unit in the UK. And it was originally um, conceived as a hardship index for Brits working as expats in overseas cities and they just reversed it and called it a livability index, and <laughs> made all sorts of, they, I think circulation of the economists went, went up tenfold as a result. Anyway, <clears throat> so our NCCC strategy said that the public transport, cycling and walking improvements should be done first because the east-west tunnel was less assured. Its benefits were dubious and risky and its impacts were severe. And if the other things were done first, it was possible the tunnel wouldn't be needed at all. I thought that was quite a good risk-averse strategy, don't you think so? But the government quietly ignored that set of recommendations. Um, John Brumby had replaced Steve Brax as Premier, and the story at this point goes that someone took him up in a helicopter to show him the traffic queues on the Eastern Freeway. He decided, then and there, presumably up in the helicopter, that the East-West Tunnel should go back on the agenda, (coughs) and commissioned Sir Rod Eddington to do the East-West Link Needs Assessment. Rob was a bit busy, so it took him a few months to get started. I was with SKM at the time, and we won a place on the consultant team, and I spent many weeks arguing that the terms of reference, written by politicians, uh, were too narrow, and that we should include major public transport options in the mix. I'm glad to say we won that argument, and the report actually recommended the Regional Rail Link and Melbourne Metro ahead of the East-West Link. The Regional Rail Link then got over $3 in the first tranche of federal funding of urban public transport in modern times. So, we relaxed again for a while, and Ted Bailey won the next election on a public transport first ticket. We all got excited again. Significant dollars promised to study rail projects. Although, admittedly, none of us could fathom the reason for the Avalon Airport rail link. <laughs> SKM won the Roeville Rail Study, which I led, and I also advised on the Doncaster one. And I wrote a strategy for landside access to Melbourne Airport, which put the airport rail link into perspective. Collectively, things were looking good. And then Dr. Knapstein took over. And we heard that he wanted to change things. Well, he sure did. The East-West Link suddenly and inexplicably became the biggest transport priority in the state. And all the public transport projects, except those mostly already started by the previous government, ground to a halt. The next thing we knew, he'd thrown out Melbourne Metro and replaced it with the Melbourne Rail Link, diverting the Frankston and Belgrave and Lilydale lines via Montague and forcing every passenger on those lines who wants to get to Flinders Street Station, and why not? I mean, it's the most popular station in the CBD to change trains somewhere. This diversion was apparently the only way to make the napkin rail link, as I like to call it, seeing as it was planned on the back of one, actually work. (coughs) Well, none of this is really new. It was politicians who closed most of Australia's tram systems in the 1960s. The only reason Melbourne still has trams, as you probably all know, and if you don't, you should that Sir Robert Rissen, head of the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works, stood up to the government of the day who wanted to scrap them and dig up the tracks. He changed their minds, but only by showing them that digging up the tracks would be too costly. Thank goodness Dr. Napkin, to whom cost is no object, at least when it comes to toll roads, wasn't in charge then. <coughs> so, I could go on, I have plenty more stories like this. Every time we seem to get somewhere with a bit of rational planning, Politicians blunder in and stuff it all up, mainly just because they want to do something different from the previous mob. This is no way to plan a city and it must stop. The the only politician I would support is one who promises to depoliticize the whole process and require that public funds are spent on projects that are part of an integrated plan designed to get us and our children to a more sustainable and livable future. Changing everything of every few years for political reasons does only one thing. It delays progress along this path. So, in summary, I definitely believe that public transport planning, which is at the centre of urban planning and the long-term survival of cities, is far too important to be left to politicians. Even the best ones need professional help. Thank you.
5: Well, what an honour it is to be invited, of all the 600 odd councillors and local politicians in Victoria, to speak on this subject and be the inaugural debate, the Paul Mees debate on public transport. It is indeed a great honour. I uh, first knew Paul, uh, actually probably one of the few people who uh, who was very polite to always, because uh, I sat on a tribunal. And he was a lawyer advocate in compensation and he had to be super polite because he wanted to get decisions in his favour. And I can say that he was always a very, very competent advocate. But I certainly got to know Paul as a colleague, a fellow transport advocate, as a constituent of the city of Yarra, living in my ward, and indeed also as a contestant because he he contested uh, the elections in the city of Yarra in my ward, Nichols' ward. So it is a great pleasure to debate this. We've heard a lot of criticism of uh, politicians. We've heard criticism of the lowest common denominator of politicians. We've heard uh, criticisms of irrelevant politicians that are only really given focus in the media. What we're going to talk about is those who are leaders. And uh, before I talk about those, I'm going to talk about the alternatives. alternatives to politicians? Well, let's consider those bureaucrats, okay? Administrators. They're concerned with means, not ends, writing reports, enlarging departments, irrespective of outcomes for society. Yes Minister. No one's mentioned Yes Minister yet, but uh, it's very pertinent in a number of respects. Yes Minister highlighted that the civil service work consists of circulating information. They don't get outcomes. They just present briefs and reports. They're the ones who devised the PPPs and gave advice to the politicians. They're the ones who, yes, minister the politicians on these things. They're the ones who provided the advice of uh, being the 20% uh, of public of people using public transport being aspirational because being part of their KPIs, they'd lose performance pay. So they had to devise ways in which uh, they wouldn't lose the performance pay. They write the terms of reference. Do you think ministers sit down and write terms of reference for reports? We certainly don't as councillors. They're written by the bureaucrats. So it's the bureaucrats. We certainly don't expect them to contribute uh, to the public interest. Paul Mees had considerable disdain for bureaucrats, as uh, our opening speaker, Senator Janet Rice, said... He was scathing about the administrators in the Department of Transport, so much so that he lost his job at the University of Melbourne. He saw saw those administrators, the planners, the transport planners, the urban planners, as captured by project-driven engineers obsessed with road infrastructure projects. Bureaucrats, they don't engage with the community. They're isolated either in Canberra, either in Spring Street, they no longer offer frank, fearless advice to politicians. And as Paul Mees argued so vehemently, they're captured by the car lobby. Remember, he's number one, captured by the car lobby, the RECV, captured by the trucking industry. Now, it's the bureaucrats in the department. The secretary of the department, or whoever structured the department, it's, that's it, within the role of the bureaucrats, has got rid of any rail freight administration in the department. If you want to send something by rail freight, there's nowhere to go in in the agency. They're the ones that structure and organise the department and they've uh, destructured in a way that is undermined public transport. We certainly wouldn't want to leave public transport to the bureaucrats. Business organisations, let's turn to those. Paul was scathing about those as well. They represent partisan, sectional interests They're focused on making the best return for shareholders or themselves, not what's good for the public and society. They're not necessarily concerned about triple bottom line analyses. Business wants to encourage consumption, buying more and more, particularly buying more and more cars, the gas-guzzling cars. Just look at their advertising, wasting money on false messages, Look too at the role of VECI, RECV and other business organisations pretending to support public transport, always giving priority to the motor vehicle, always. Businesses run 13 million corporate cars in Australia. 800 businesses go bankrupt each year. There's a link between the two, no doubt. So business is hardly likely to be an effective source of expertise for sound judgments in the public interest. Let's, let's, let's look next at paid consultants, even worse. Sorry, William, I should know I was one. <laughs> Again, they provide technical engineering advice and solutions. They do what they're told, giving narrow advice restricted to what they're paid for. They hardly like to, to advise what's in the public interest because they're, they're appointed for a particular purpose. Most of all, the advice goes nowhere. And William told you about the reports that he's written that's gone nowhere. Now, I do want to acknowledge William McDougall, but as a transport planner and consultant, and acknowledge the roadway rail study, but where have the studies gone? Consultants uh, can't get anywhere without relying on, uh, on politicians. And indeed... He's the arch example of supporting our cause and our side of the debate. William heroically left the public, left his consultancy, SKM, and he's joined advocacy with politicians and the community to get public transport outcomes. So what better standing, sitting advertisement? The second speaker for the affirmative is... Supporting our cause, he left the consulting world to work with politicians and the community. And William, I love you for it. <laughs> Though you left it a bit late, you know, at your t- later <laughs> end of the career, and we won't, I won't go there and ask you how old you are, but at least you saw the light. <laughs> Thank you Thank you, Rod. Now academics, we've got a few. Well, like bureaucrats, they teach, they do research, they write books and articles, reports, which can be, can be influential, but they don't have the power or the means to get results. This frustrated Paul intensely, and part, you know, he had 30, 40 years of frustration over this, and he probably should have entered politics. But uh, he found his element in teaching the next generation of students many of whom will enter politics, no doubt, and help change the debate. So, on my first point, key point, bureaucrats, business, consultants, academics, they can't be relied on to achieve public transport planning and results. So, uh, and I know I've been all of those as an academic and a consultant uh, as well. So, now to my second point, key point, the vital role of politicians – At the end of the day, it is up to politicians to make decisions in the public interest, and it's the community, and uh, we will highlight this further, the community who elects the politicians, get the politicians they deserve, but they, they elect the politicians to lead, make decisions for society. No other group in society has the authority, power, to make decisions for the community. If they're not effective, the community can get rid of them. It's much harder to get rid of bureaucrats, Uh, Paul tried, Um, and it's much harder to get rid of consultants uh, or people in business. But you can get rid of the the, the politicians that are are the lowest common denominator. If they're not effective, they're voted out. Let me give you a few examples of aspiring politicians, and I don't have much time. I'm going to be very quick on those. Ken Livingston, Mayor of London, congestion charging. Boris Johnson followed on. $1.2 raised by that to support public transport. Mayor Bloomberg in New York, uh, working to revolutionise New York as a walking, cycling public transport city. Penaloza of Bogota, yes. But in Australia, we've got lots of examples, and the overseas examples were denigrated, but we've got Robert Doyle, who when he was elected, he, he, he looked at... Uh, standing for Mayor as uh, returning cars to Swanson Street, but after reviewing the evidence and the options, he became a strong environmental advocate and he accepted and adopted Mayor Bloomberg's dictum In God we trust, for the rest of us, we need evidence. Great politician, Alana McTiernan in Western Australia, responsible for Mandurah Rail. Senator Janet Rice is a shining example, has already been highlighted declining a mayoral car and being a champion for public transport. Politicians made the decision to build the regional rail link. Politicians made the decision to, to support the uh, South Morang rail line. The Mernda rail line looks like it's being delivered as well for the same formula. Local politicians working with community to get outcomes, this being adopted then in the, in the state arena. So the key message is the role of community working with politicians to get outcomes. There's a powerful dynamic combination and this is a, a major theme that my colleagues are emphasising and will be concluded on by Associate Professor Caroline Wiseman. Thank you.
6: Yeah, use that. It's a good idea.
0: Works better. Thank you, Jackie, and the Mutual Admiration Society
6: <laughs> over here
0: are doing a very good job so far, aren't they, ladies and gentlemen? Now, it's traditional in these debates to finish with a great wallop, of course, at the end from each of our final speakers, and there'll be no disappointment, I'm sure, from Rod Quantock, who, ladies and gentlemen, can I just say, is absolutely hand with living
7: treasure. Rod.
6: Thanks. John... Thanks very much, John. Uh, now, don't start yet because I'm just preparing. OK? I'll be back. Now, let's do this properly. <laughs> Okay, started. Well, look, thank you so much for coming, and like everybody uh, here this evening, it's an honour to be part of this uh, inaugural Paul Meese debate. Um, Unlike the rest of the people here, I hated Paul, um, (laughs) because Paul really should have been a comedian. Um, Paul was one of the funniest people I've ever heard speak, and uh, for that, I envy him deeply. Um, Now, Look, they're nice people over here. I mean, you can't see them now, but if you do remember, they're nice people, but they're living in fairyland. They're they're living in a world where apparently democracy is the answer. And um, I'll just give you a quick illustration of our democracy. Here's Rupert Murdoch. And he lives inside this enormous thing called Rupert Murdoch's arse. And... Everybody is up it, okay? Everybody is up it. In fact, there are people like this Gina Reinhart, who's got Andrew Bolt up her. It's a great sort of babushka doll of asses. Just he's up that ass, he's up that ass. There is no democracy. You can't leave these things to politicians. Now, look, just a little bit of background. Um, The first Quantock uh, came to Melbourne in 1838. My connections to this city are that deep and long. And I was born in... And uh, (laughs) when I was born, Melbourne was a small, walled, medieval city of perhaps (laughs) 15,000 people and three cars. My parents uh, lived through the tail end of the First World War they lived through the Depression and they lived and served in the, uh, in the Second World War and they came away from those experiences and these included the bombing of Hiroshima, um, the Holocaust. Uh, my parents came into a world that looked back on its recent history and decided that we can do better and when my father came back from the war, um, he didn't have a job and I remember I was very young, a baby, probably I was a baby at the time, two, two and a half, I was a baby. And we were sitting in, um, in the gutter in Sydney Road, Coburg. No home, no hope, no future. And while we were sitting there, my mother and father and my brother and myself, a tram came past and it was empty. And my father said, well, bugger it, we'll live on that. And we did. You could in those days. There were no protective services officers. And because, uh, because we were there all the time, people assumed my father was the conductor and they kept giving him money and in no time at all we could afford a home. So my, um, my attachment to public um, transport is, is quite visceral because of that. And I've looked at this city with its its marvels and so on and and wondered why we can't do better. And I've wondered about where we should go to do better. With so many problems in the world, we run up against this brick wall of the stupidity and the ignorance and the venal behaviour of our politicians. And it only gets worse. Okay, It only gets worse. And at the moment, we've got here in uh, Melbourne... Or Victoria, we've got Dennis Napthine. Dennis Napthine. Now, I looked that up in a dictionary, and it's not even a word. Okay. <laughs> now, he is obsessed with building an east-west link. And for, I know some of you have seen me uh, give my quite comprehensive. Um, uh, assessment of the East-West Link before, but for those of you who haven't, let's just run through why Dennis and the boys, and look, as part of all of this, we mustn't forget the Institute of Public Affairs, okay? They're a right-wing think tank, and I want you to pick the word that's out of place in that expression. (laughs) These are free market zealots, okay? These people are reviled by any form of deregulation. And we now have a Prime Minister who said, coal is good for humanity. Coal is good for humanity. Look, you you don't like to preach revolution, but we should leave. (laughs) We should leave public transport up to a revolutionary committee appointed by me. But we'll come to that in a moment. (laughs) Now, for those of you who are not aware of the nefarious activities of the IPA, Because these are the people, Abbott has never had an idea in his life. He's never had, he's had one idea, knights and dames. That was his idea. That's the sort of ideas he has. And now we've got a knight and a dame, but unfortunately they're not a breeding pair. So that (laughs) may well be the end of them. But look, the IPA, great great advocates of public-private partnerships. But look, I is the sixth letter of the alphabet, P is the ninth letter, which is a six upside down, and A is for apples, and you never have more than six apples. There we go, the number of the beast, the IPA. And they're the people running the agenda for every Liberal government in this country. These people who are ignorant buffoons. And the East-West Link we need because, A, we have leafy eastern suburbs out here. The leafy eastern suburbs. They're all owned by Chinese. I read that in the Herald Sun. Um, (laughs) They move there to be close to the public schools. Now, they have at the moment the uh, eastern freeway this vast, vast freeway which ends at Hoddle Street, which isn't quite so vast. And then, apparently, it turns into a goat track um, (laughs) full of bumps. There's there's the North Carlton Swamp there. (laughs) There's the quicksands of despair at Lygon Street. There are mountains where Sherpas have to carry your car over the top before you can get to the Tullamarine Freeway and head off to the airport. And that's the way it is. That's why we need it. But we also need it because every day 50,000 cars line up here at Hoddle Street waiting to carry on their lives. And of those 50,000 cars, 92% of them don't want to go there. (laughs) 92%. They want to go here. They want to go there, 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 and some people get here and go, oops, I forgot my lunch, and want to go there, 92%, 50,000 people, and only 8% of them want to go there, 8 over 100 times 50,000, divide by 2, you get, it equals 11 people, 11 people want to go to the Tullamarine Airport. Now, look, look, it's going to cost, I heard there's been varying things, but today, 6.8 billion. That's what they say, but you and I know that it will cost 12 billion. Everything always costs, costs twice as much. And I always double the doubling to <laughs> twenty-four billion dollars because whenever I go to a protest and there are 30,000 people at the protest the Herald Sun says there are 10,000. Well if they can divide by 3 I can multiply by 4 it will cost 12 billion dollars and 11 people are going to use it 11 into 12 billion dollars that's a 22 over it's about 15 it's a lot of subsidy for these people each one of them is getting paid more than a billion dollars just to use that tollway. Now, hands up the people who woke up this morning and thought, my day won't be complete without a graph. <laughs> Where are those? Yes, there's always a few. OK, we'll just go and do the graph. It's a quick graph, and everybody knows that here it is. I'm sorry you're missing this. It's really funny. <laughs> Here's the graph here. It's called a bell curve graph, named after Alexander Graham Curve. Okay, I don't care. Um, The graph of peak oil, 1857 oil discovered in America, then the invention of the car and then we needed asphalt to drive on and then we got aeroplanes and World War II and then we got the two-stroke motor motor mower and then the leaf blower and at that point we went over the top of peak oil. They say $20 a litre by 2030. perhaps, And that's a minimum. $20 a litre by 2030. I want you to imagine Chinese family. Their child's gone to Scotch College and is a violin virtuoso. They all are, the Chinese children. I saw that on a Current Affair. <laughs> they want to drive from here to the Tullamarine Airport. They go to the petrol station, fill up the Merck, $8,000 to fill up the Merck. They get to the tollway, and because only 11 people use it, it costs them $175 million to use the tollway. They go all the way to Hong Kong. (laughs) Back they come, get to Tullamarine, check the bank balance, zero, zero dollars. No money to get the car out of the car park. No money, if they could, to fill it up with petrol. No money, if they could, do both those things to pay the toll to get home. They will end up living in Tullamarine. <laughs> and the people of Tullamarine who go that way to the Dandenongs for a Devonshire tea will find themselves coming back here and going, Oh, we're out of money, and they'll end up living in the eastern suburbs. And in a hundred years' time, a modern-day Thor Heyerdahl will build a papyrus uh, Mercedes-Benz and push it all the way from the leafy eastern suburbs to Tullamarine to prove that the people of Tullamarine once came from the leafy eastern suburbs. <laughs> look, we can't leave... This is absurd, this is stupid, this is... Mad. We can't leave anything to politicians. And I know I'm going over and deduct points if you must, but look, Dennis Napthine. I used to do a lot of work at the zoo. And I was emceeing an event at the zoo and Dennis Napthine was to speak at it as well as his wife. So Dennis, was, this was when he was uh, a minister under Kennet and uh, it was very brave of me to introduce him without vomiting, but I did. <laughs> and um, so I introduced him, he makes a speech and I'm looking at his wife and she's looking in a handbag and she's tapping her po- and she'd forgotten her glasses and she had to read the speech and she couldn't without them. And I had a pair of those chemists you know, one-size-fits-all glasses, and I thought, well, I could give them to her. Um, (laughs) But, you know, if I didn't give them to her, she'd make a mess of the speech, and in the car on the way home, he'd abuse her for embarrassing him in public, and she'd scream at him, and they'd be punching. by the time they got home, they'd be divorced, and their children would be sent out into the world, and the younger one would become a heroin addict and die on the streets of St Kilda, and he'd never get to be Premier. That's what I thought, but... Being a gentleman, I lent her the glasses. And she read the speech and everything was fine. So I rang Dennis when he thought this up. I said, Dennis, remember me? I'm the one who saved your marriage. (laughs) What say we don't go ahead with this? It's like, you owe me a favour. And he said, no. So really, they have no ethics. They have no compassion. (laughs) And overall, they're stupid. Thank you. Thank you very much. You you yeah, I should be a consultant, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Knowing as I did. Whoops. Knowing that
8: I did, as I did, that I was gonna be following Rod. I didn't even bother preparing notes. Um look, I don't know whether you- we have been sharing, thank you so much. We uh oh, look, I have a voice. Okay. Um as I was saying, if you have been doing the tale of the optics tonight, this cross-political group has been plotting together and we are going to create sustainable change. What we've been arguing tonight is, and, and you know, thanks Jago, first he puts me after Rod and then he says, oh your counter-argument is going to be transport planning isn't important at all and that's why it should be left to politicians. Well. Screw that noise. Um, Our counter argument is, and it was set up very ably by my colleague, Janet, that precisely because good public transport planning is vital to our environmental, social, and economic future, good politicians with vision and courage and the ability to talk together and the ability to learn are vital to lead that change. And our first sub argument, and if you look beyond the hilarity that has been either intentionally or unintentionally brought by uh, the affirmative team, we've been arguing that politicians in a representative democracy aren't an undifferentiated or unchanging mass. As the first speaker said, Wendy, I love her, I agree 100% with her analysis of the problem, But if she said what she said about politicians, about any other group, she would be in Andrew Bolt nesting derriere territory because you can't make those kind of stereotypes about human beings. There's all kinds of politicians. It's up to you tonight to get the politicians that you deserve. The second sub-argument that we've been making is that if transport planning isn't going to be left to the politicians. What's their model? Who's it going to be left to? The bureaucrats? Business? Self-governing anarchist collectives? Um, I think that we heard, and uh, self-governing anarchist collectives I'm totally in favor of, let me tell you. And it worked really well for three weeks in Spain in May of 1936, but generally, if politicians don't lead, we end up with infinitely worse alternatives. And can I just say, and again, I have a great deal of respect for William, the second speaker, for the affirmative, but let me do a brief precy of his talk. We planners have been right the whole time, but what can you do? Eh, politicians! You know, that kind of passive-aggressive shrug <laughs> is the default setting of we planners. Our third sub-argument has been an important aspect of good politicians having leadership and vision is their capacity to build cross-party coalitions that will carry on an initiative for more than one political term. And that's really what lifts a good politician into a great politician. And we have given examples, we have given evidence We might not like some of the evidence because God forbid it comes from outside Australia, as indeed do I, but we have had the example, not just of Enrique Penaloza, but of his deepest arch enemy, um, uh, Antonis Malkus, following on with Transmillennial. We've had the example of Ken Livingston from the red end of Redland um, proposing a congestion charge, and lots of people opposing him, but he showed political vision and political leadership, and Boris Johnson, who comes very much from the other end of the political spectrum, though to his credit he does bicycle, um, followed on, props to Boris Johnson. We've had examples of Alana McTurnan from Western Australia, and in the Western Australian government, in the, in the last election, whoever you voted for, you were going to get the rail link because the rail link worked. It can happen in Australia, It has happened elsewhere, it's happened in Amsterdam, it's happened in Copenhagen, that you've had politicians who've gone beyond their narrow political vision and created change. And if we can do it in those other places, why can't we do it in Victoria? Now, I was a bureaucrat for 10 years. I had lots of great ideas. I had to work with politicians to make those great ideas happen. I was working on a huge um, initiative that led to a half million dollars a year um, grant program called Breaking the Cycle of Violence. It went, we had evidence, we had consultation, we had everything. We went to a subcommittee of city council, and that subcommittee said no. What could I do as a bureaucrat? I could have shook my shoulders and gone, eh, politicians. But what happened instead was that I turned to the community organizations I consulted with and I said, I can't do anything anymore. It's up to you to talk to the politicians. And each community organization found a a politician. They didn't say, oh, you know, we'll bury you or you're a bunch of idiots. They talked to the politicians as though they were rational human beings and gave examples of their own uh, experiences with violence. They asked the politicians about violence. The result was the most remarkable evening I've ever spent. I'm sorry, this isn't gonna be the most remarkable evening I've ever spent, even though Rod was awesome. Um, But politician after politician stood up and spoke from the heart. One politician who'd voted against in subcommittee, he talked about growing up in a violent family. His father had been violent towards his mother. Another politician talked to, and a very conservative politician talked in the third person about the experiences of a young girl who'd been sexually assaulted and no one in that room doubted who that was. They voted unanimously for the Breaking the Cycle of Violence grants and lives were changed. That's how change happens. When I was a student, I was a student journalist and I loved student journalism so much I married my editor. and. Um, We were very unhappy about the corruption and the business as usual being done by the student politicians. And at a certain point, we had to suck it up. We had to run on an anarchist platform for the student association um, presidency and win. And we uh, decided that instead of um, student association money, being uh, done on the basis of business as usual, being done on the basis of uh, cronyism, um, who is friends with whom, we would uh, do the simple method that I think could very easily be applied to public transport, which is how is this student association money going to benefit students? And what that meant was that the Engineering Association, which had gotten a lot of money for frat parties, were in the uncomfortable position of having to justify that frat party in terms of public good. Make no mistake, the east-west link is ultimately, because yeah, the first stage is six, million, uh, six billion rather, and then there's going to be the western link, which is going to be six billion, and then there's going to be the coming of the Third Reich, which is going to be the extra ring road, and that's going to be all awesome. We're talking about 18 billion to start off with. It is an 18 billion dollar engineering frat party. It's not Dennis Napthine's baby. It's Rod Eddington's baby. It comes out of the brains of bureaucrats. And that's where I'm going to land. If you can't elect the right politicians you are going to end up with the wrong bureaucrats. It, as Jackie said, it's a lot easier to get rid of a bad politician than it is to get rid of a bad bureaucrat. We hang on to our jobs, well, when I was a bureaucrat, we hang on to our jobs with our nails. We completely try to ignore politicians. We need good politicians to kick us up the butt. What I'd like to end with is um, what Paul always wanted. Um, The first time I met Paul in um, October of 2002 when I applied for a job at the University of Melbourne, He took out the then freshly minted Melbourne 2030 and he said, this is complete bunkum. Well, I'd read Melbourne 2030, I had to before the interview. I thought it was pretty darn good. I thought it represented the pinnacle of bureaucratic planning. And he said, and he transpired to be right, even though at the time I thought he was a pretty crabby Cassandra, uh, that it had come out of bureaucratic wet dreams. It hadn't come out of a true community consultation. They hadn't talked to local politicians. They hadn't really worked out how it was going to work with federal politicians. It came out of a bureaucratic dream. And in 2011, Paul wrote, ultimately Melbourne 2030, and really the current plan has more in common with Melbourne 2030 than it has different. It died because it deserved to. The problem was not lack of political or bureaucratic will as expressed in the don't think, just do model, but rather the problem identified by Bent Pflugberg, power makes you stupid. Well, if Paul had stopped there, you could just choose either team. You could choose the people who think that somehow there's gonna be a magical alternative of bureaucracy that's gonna make better decisions than politicians, or you could go with us, good politicians, bad politicians, but then he went on to say that um, because the Department of Infrastructure officials who prepared Melbourne 2030 did not share party with the public, local government, or even the community rep- um, reference group, they guaranteed the strategy would have no public um, legitimacy. He said that a common account of the woes of planners posits professional planners as guardians of the public good, whose noble intentions are overturned by political interference, development lobbies, or ignorant NIMBY members of the public. The sad conclusion is that the most influential lobby against effective metropolitan planning was the Department of Infrastructure, which has changed names four, year, uh, four times in the last 10 years, like a witness protection program. There's still the same problem We need better politicians. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. And now you've heard from the protagonists, ladies and gentlemen. There is an opportunity to take the microphone and a gentleman's already there, one of the student assistants. If you'd like to form an orderly crush just at the top of the stairs and we'll see how many of your questions to the panelists we can get through in the time that we still have remaining. And then there's the all-important process of going through the extremely formal voting procedure. So just, if you'd like to ask a question, to the top of the stairs there where the microphone awaits you. So we've heard from Wendy Steele, who told us and quoted Tim Winton, that Australians have stopped thinking and gone shopping. She told us that we have to choose over velocity, over livability, and I loved the phrase automobility, which I'd not heard before, but most importantly, she said Paul was about talking truth to power, and I quite like that. Senator Rice told us that urban transport is a political, not a technical issue, and then she vainly tried to distance herself from her own argument because, of course, she's a politician. We then moved on and learned from William McDougall about the napkin rail link, which I'm going to struggle next time I'm interviewing (laughs) Premier Napkin to get that one out of my head, for which I'll curse you no doubt, William, but thank you very much for that. And then inevitably we had the quip that we had to go to South America to find good politicians. Well, we've in fact gone even further than that, haven't we? We then heard from Jackie Fristacki, from the mayor of Yarra, who introduced Yes Minister, and of course you have to take her contribution with a grain of salt because she disclosed, quite rightly, that Paul ran against her in a local government election, so she's clearly biased right from the start. (laughs) But we also learned from Jackie that Ken and Boris in London do a great job, and of course they're from opposite ends of the spectrum. But I'm not sure, Jackie, about the link between owning cars and businesses going bust. I think it needs a little more work, quite frankly. And then we had Rod Quantock. Ladies and gentlemen, what can I say? Good looking, insightful, yes. Uh, The RACV are a car lobby, but he didn't use the best gag I've heard in the East West Tunnel debate so far, which is, of course, that it's a a trucking funnel. I always have to pause and get that one right. On the other hand, he did introduce Rupert Murdoch's nether regions to the debate and we could have done without that image as well. Eleven people to use the tunnel rod? (laughs) I suspect there may be more. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your questions, thank you for your participation and it is of course a great democratic tradition in this city. So the proposition, put simply, was that public transport is too important to be left to politicians. Those who think that the points tonight go to the affirmative team, make a noise now. And that means there's nobody in the room at all who thinks, of course, that they should be voting for the negative team, is there? Is there anyone who thinks? I think it's too close to call. Ladies and gentlemen, the negative team clearly have won.
6: (laughs) And I hope you've had fun this evening
0: as well. It just shows, doesn't it, Rod? There's no justice in the world whatsoever. Erica Ciavini and Jago Dodson are to conclude the evening with a few thanks and formalities, and I'd like you to welcome them, ladies and gentlemen, up to the stage. Jago Dodson, yeah, yeah. close colleague of, and Erica who who is married to the wonderful and much missed Paul Mees. Could you welcome them to the stage as we conclude this
6: <laughs> evening's proceedings?
7: some cheat notes here. Um, The numbers tonight are wonderful, and Paul would be delighted, particularly given his love for debating, whether informally at the pub, where he'd be so focused on um, a topic, he'd pick up anybody's drink on the table, and people who know him knew about that. Or formally, as part of debating competitions, and one of his old debating buddies is here tonight, Penny Wright. Um, Green Senator for South Australia, so thank you for coming along tonight, Penny. I would really like to thank you for turning up tonight, especially because it's cold. Um, this is also an opportunity to belatedly thank people for their kind thoughts last year after Paul's death. I just didn't get the chance um, to personally thank everyone, so please forgive me. What um, I've also noticed um, since Paul's death, and this is kind of a nice thing that's come out of the tragedy um, of Paul's death, is that it's brought a lot of people together, so tonight. Um, And also my friends have got to know Paul's friends, and so there's all these connections now, and um, which I think is really lovely. A special thank you to Bo B. Beezer and Jago Dodson from RMIT for helping to organise this event, and, of course, the panellists. I also want to acknowledge the travel distance, some of Paul's brothers, Peter and Stephen, um, and Stephen's partner. Rachel and little Finn have um, made to get to the debate tonight. Bernard, um, another of Paul's brothers, who um, is a lecturer at RMIT, didn't have far to come, and Katie... (laughs) His partner works in the CBD, so (laughs) easy. They got off lightly, but they don't own a car. Either does my mother, Roberta, who's here tonight, she doesn't have a car, or one of my brothers, John, he doesn't have a car either. Um, However, Paul's father, Tom, loved cars and motorbikes and would dink Paul on the back of a motorbike to school. Tom, like Paul, was a lawyer and enjoyed debating the law with Paul and was proud of his achievements as he was with all his sons. Tom died three weeks ago. I'm not going to go on because I can hear stomachs rumbling, Um, but this event has been made a success because of you, your interest in transport issues, debate, um, public debate. Happy state election voting.
9: Ah, well, good evening everyone. What a fine debate this has been, a truly fitting event in tribute and memorial to Paul Mees, one of Melbourne's great public debaters. I'm not going to say much other than to offer some thanks to those who've helped make this event possible. First, I'd like to thank uh, the Vice-Chancellor, uh, Jill Palmer from RMIT, uh, for opening the event, uh, and also thank the Centre for Urban Research and the Sustainability and Urban Planning Programme, whose banners. Uh, stand on the side of the stage for supporting and hosting this event. Uh, and Paul worked uh, in both of those uh, those groups within RMIT. I'd also like to thank the RMIT committee who helped organise the debate and that includes Joe Hurley, uh, Crystal Legacy, who unfortunately couldn't be here because she's uh, uh, investigating public transport infrastructure issues in Canada at the moment, uh, Bo Beza uh, and Ben Bucknell from the, uh, the, the College of uh, so- uh, Design and Social Context uh, with an RMIT who deserves special thanks because he did a lot of the background organising uh, work and I'd also like to thank our student assist- assistants uh, and the AV team. Uh, and next I'd like to thank our panellists. Uh, we have some small gifts for them tonight tonight, and there's a nice story behind these gifts. We had invited Rob Sitch from the Working Dog Productions to participate in the debate. I'm sure you've been avidly watching his uh, uh, recent ABC show Utopia which is... Uh, uh, be mentioned by some panellists. And in our conversation, Rob reflected on Paul Mee's work as greatly informing his thinking about Utopia. Unfortunately, he was scheduled to be away from Melbourne tonight, uh, but he mysteriously said he had a mate who could sort something out. <laughs> Soon after, a package wrapped in brown paper appeared on my doorstep and a card was included and it has a logo on it. From the Nation Building Authority. (laughs) And it reads To all the debaters, please accept as a gift the true currency of the public private infrastructure world. I'm sure you can guess 59 Grange Hermitage. On behalf of everyone at the Nation Building Authority, signed Tony. I'm sure Paul would have been delighted to know that tonight's utopian thinking, because we've heard some of that, uh, will be followed by some utopian drinking. (laughs) So I would also like to thank our panellists, Wendy Steele, Senator Janet Rice, William McDougall, Jackie Fristacki, Rod Quantock and Carolyn Weitzman. And I'd also very much like to thank our MC, uh, John Fain, for his uh, uh, introductions and comparing tonight, another great uh, Melbourne public figure. There's someone else who deserves our thanks, and that's Erica. Uh, Erica, it was important to me and to the team at RMIT that you be involved in tonight's event, and... Uh, gave your blessing to uh, this occasion. And so we're delighted that you could be involved and offer your contribution to the planning and the uh, 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 the activities of the event and to be here tonight to celebrate. Uh, I think it's... <laughs> I think what many of us perhaps don't realise is that Paul was a very public figure. Uh, but he couldn't have... Taken on that public role without the strength and support that he gained from, from Erica, not only as a as a wife uh, and uh, and friend, uh, but also as a professional in the media sector who uh, gave him advice, supported him in terms of his uh, activities in the media field and the conduct of his uh, sort of public persona as a uh, as a person navigating the media and uh, dealing with people like John. Uh, and uh, and getting stuck into the debate. Uh, And Erica also cared for Paul, obviously, during his months of illness. So thank you, Erica. And lastly, thank you to the audience. Uh, All of us involved hope that this will become an annual event to remember Paul. Uh, And civic debate and the civic conversation in Melbourne about public transport or any other matter that affects our city depends on the involvement of people like yourselves who come out on uh, cool and sometimes windy and rainy evenings to participate in these kind of events. Uh, so I hope you'll continue to be part of the civic conversation and perhaps we'll even see you, be- see you back here next year for the second uh, Paul Mees Memorial Debate. So thank you.